here's some tips for maintaining your Trex deck. Um, occasionally wash it with some soapy water or a pressure cleaner. Trex composite decking is low maintenance and won't fade, splinter or warp. Trex, the world's number one decking brand. Hi, it's Brett Phillips here, host of The First Serve, and thank you for downloading the latest edition of Crunching the Numbers, one of our podcast offerings here at The First Serve. You can get your weekly live tennis fix with The First Serve every Monday night on the SCN Radio Network at 7pm Eastern. All the broadcast details of how you can listen can be found at our website, thefirstserve.com.au. Welcome to Crunching the Numbers, the first serves in-depth look at the art and science of playing the game. Well, welcome to another episode of Crunching the Numbers. I'm your host, Mark Sapoulos from The Tennis Menu, and my co-host, as always, the numbers man, Mr. Shane Leonard from Data Driven Sports Analytics. Shane, thank you once again for joining us. Thanks, Mark. Hi, everyone. Uh, great to be able to jump on air to bring you this podcast on what I um, hope will be an interesting episode for all those listening. I'm certainly excited to dive into it with Mark. We are. We're uh, literally still, uh, again, being shut down here in Melbourne, and it's obviously a real challenging time uh, for us, and we're still on our Zoom calls, Shano, and it's always good to, to see your face, and interesting because you've got a great topic that you've been researching this week, and it's something that you know I've always looked at from a, an objective matter, which is obviously which is the best forehand in the game and from a coach perspective I get to look at it I get to see it but today you're going to break down a little bit from a numbers perspective and what have you found over the time of researching this? Yeah so over the next two weeks I'm keen to look at the best forehands and backhands on both tours using a rating system that I've developed at data-driven sports analytics and and one that I actually use with clients to help benchmark where they are in relation to other players on tour. Uh, Now I'll put a few uh, sample visualizations out on the data-driven sports analytics social media channels so if you're interested definitely jump on and have a look and shoot through any questions if you've got any now i probably want to step back and say all rating systems have a level of contention always attached to them and it's because you know they're based on different calculations it's important what data you've built into it so i do want to put that out there if you're interested in using a rating system whether it's this one or any other rating system i encourage you to spend a little bit of time understanding how the rating system sort of builds together so the calculations what data is used and really try and get underneath the covers a little bit so you understand what goes into building it and then consequently how the numbers fall and how you can sort of apply it to to your specific scenario now this week we're looking at forehands in particular and our rating system provides an attacking score and a defensive score for forehands for players in the top 200 in the atp and wta their overall score is just an average of both their um, attacking and defensive score. Now, the visual we released on social media actually takes it a little bit further. It plots the the players on an X and Y axis on attacking and defensive. It's a scatter plot, and then we've actually clustered that for players. So you'll you'll see on the top right, you'll see what I refer to as the top or the elite cluster, where you find players that attack and defend the best on tour. Uh, and you, and when, when you look at their names, in the, there's probably no surprises as to who's sort of leading that list. Now, I can see Mark and probably those listening in mentally yelling at me, asking me who are the top three players based on the ratings um so we might start with the atp where i've got roger federer rafael nadal and juan martin del potro sort of topping the ratings probably not a huge surprise but but uh, i do want to point out while they ended up with relatively similar overall scores they do get there uh, in slightly different ways so the attacking and defensive scores are actually quite different for the three of them even though their sort of overall score ends up roughly the same. If you're pinning me down and asking me who I thought had the best forehand, I'll probably give you these three names. 
So what, when you talk about the best forehand, what kind of things are you looking at data-wise to be able to compare players' sort of stroke production? I'm glad you asked that, Mark, and I think it's a really important question to ask before using this or any rating system at all. Uh, as I alluded to before, uh, with the rating system, the devil is actually in the details. So in, in this specific calculation, we, we use data captured by our tracking tool to um, pick up winners, forcing errors, so where a player forces an opponent into an error, unforced errors, court positions, so uh, not only where the ball is hit from, but where the ball goes. So importantly, attached to that is proximity to the line that we calculate. And on top of that, we estimate the speed and spin using our tracking tool. And, and perhaps the, importantly, uh, with all of this data c- collected, we actually weight the results based on how a player performs in pressure moments. Um, so how did they perform in a juice moment and on a break point? We attach more of a weighting if they are able to repeat the success under pressure. So based on this analysis, this is how the, uh, these three players sort of come out on top. Now, just to give you some other names, to give you some context, a player like Nick Kyrgios or Matteo Berrettini actually score really high, highly on the attacking part of the forehand, but don't do as well as the, the guys on that list, the Federer's and Nadal's on the defensive side. Hence, they don't quite make that top cluster. That's the key. Like, I, I feel like the key to a good shot in terms of uh, a stroke production perspective is the ability to both defend and attack from it. And I think that, that sets apart the best players as well from the rest. So if you look at the best players and why they are the best players, it's because their best and worst tennis is so close together. Whereas players like a Nick Kyrgios have got an outstanding offensive forehand. But again, as you said, from a defensive perspective, does break down. And, you know, I look at the consistency of what someone can produce a shot at. And, and to me, those three players you mentioned, Federer, Nadal, Del Potro, are three players that can both play both in defense and in offense. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think uh, it's, it's probably one, one of the things that um, stands out the most, that they don't have to raise their level that much above their baseline in those critical moments. And I think if you look at the women's tour as well, someone like Serena Williams, uh, she's actually done a, a fair bit of work, I think, since uh, the start of 2010-11, and particularly in a, with her time with uh, Patrick Moratoglu. They, they've really made a forehand the best in the, in the women's game as well. Yeah, and look, obviously the best forehand doesn't necessarily mean technically it's the best. It might be the best tactically in the way that they structure the point. And, you know, someone like Nadal has an, an amazing ability to change direction of the play uh, from his backhand side to push the ball up the line to get the ball coming back cross-court to his forehand. Um, and Federer does the same. Federer's got this ability to change direction on, from his forehand side. So he'll play a cross forehand. He'll then go down the line forehand to be able to shift the play to the backhand corner where he's able to run around and play a, a run around forehand from the backhand corner. And it's the ability to structure your points, I feel as though that that is the most important. Whereas someone like Del Potro, he's a stand and deliver kind of guy. He just, he sees ball, hit ball. And because he's so tall, he's got the long levers. He's able to penetrate the ball so much bigger than a lot of the other players. And I would dare say, and I don't know stats man, Shano, but I would dare say that uh, Juan Martin Del Pocho is forcing more errors than probably anybody on the tour. When he's up and running, and particularly on the quicker surfaces, absolutely, he is, he's lightning. That, that forehand, not only winners, but forcing errors, it is, it is at the top of the, the men's game. And I think uh, for your hand, he's, he certainly, uh, certainly has it. Yeah, and there's, there's no doubt it comes down to the fact that he obviously plays with a very flat grip. So he, he's more around the eastern um, type of grip where there's a lot flatter through the court. The ball penetration is, is a lot more harder and flatter. Uh, whereas in Nadal obviously hits with more of a semi-Western kind of grip where he gets a little bit more shape on the ball. And obviously he'll get more of the shift of the player. So he'll he'll shift the player around the court with the heavy spin 
and then set them up to be able to then attack. Whereas Del Potro just goes bang from everywhere, every corner of the court. Um, and obviously, defensively, you don't really find uh, Del Potro on defense very often because he generally, from a, a neutral position, he's able to penetrate the court so much. He puts the opponent in defense more often than not. Um, and I'm keen to know from you, Mark, so technically when you've got a young athlete, what are you looking for in developing their forehand? Look, I think obviously you want repeatability. And, and that's a, a word that I generally use a lot with my younger athletes is the ability to repeat stroke production. And if you've got sound enough stroke production that can be repeatable and unbreakable at the big moments, that's generally what you look for. Obviously, you want a player that can uh, can penetrate the court, that can hit big shots. But if a shot can be repeatable and it doesn't break down very often, that's generally what you go for. Power for me is something that comes in time. And, you know, I look at a lot of young kids trying to hit the cover off the ball and every Every single shot. It's about being really smart with your shot. It's about being able to put the ball in repetitively. It's about being able to put your player into, into sticky situations. And as you grow and develop and go through puberty and and you hit your, your your gym work and you start to do the physical kind of conditioning, that's when things start to change from a power perspective and you understand how to use your body more efficiently. But for me, it's the it's the stroke fundamentals early on that play a big role in how a player can play later down the track. And, and maybe you might end on a statement, Mark, and, and challenge me and correct me, but do you feel, or, or I feel, the forehand is more important in the men's game than it is in the women's game? What, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I look, that's a, definitely something that by coaching on both tours, I found that the female game is a very neutral kind of game. So the centre of the court in the female game is the centre of the court. The men's game, the centre of the court is shifted towards the backhand corner. Why? Because the players on the men's side of the game want to hit more forehands than they, than they do backhands. So the men have the sword and shield. So the sword is their forehand. They want to attack and use it as a weapon. The shield is the backhand where they want to counterpunch and maneuver the ball a little bit more instead of trying to generate force. The female game is actually almost a little different. They generally like to really set the point up with the backhand, thump the ball through the backhand side. They still hit more winners with the forehand, which data does tell us that. And that's because their backhand is so, uh, have the ability to go in either direction, anytime, anywhere. And I think that is a little different to the men's game. And, and a lot of the time, if the ball comes through the middle of the court, the females will opt to play a backhand, whereas a male will opt to play a forehand. So it's actually quite an interesting um, scenario, the men's versus the women's game, because I feel like, you know, the men really want to work around the, the feet and get the forehand on every opportunity they can. But the females were happy to play the shot and they're happy to play inside out backhands whereas the men are sort of like oh, I'll just play cross you know and and it's it's a it's quite a funny scenario that, that I find on both tours and it's a very different ball game now people say men's and women's tennis is you know oh, there's not much difference in terms of stats but it's a different look you know from from a from the eyes perspective, it's a different look of the game. And obviously, it's a very player-dependent answer, obviously, Shane. But, you know, you, you do find that the men will, will opt to play that forehand more often than not. And the females are, are happy to play a bit more neutral. Yeah. And and just what, one point on that. Um, even someone, and we're going to talk about backhands in a future episode, but even someone like Novak Djokovic, who I, I think's probably had the best backhand in the, in the men's game, the forehand is still critical to his game. Um, and it's probably the thing that's helped him become so dominant, the fact that he's willing to to hit that forehand aggressively. He, he came on tour and he had an amazing backhand. I think what he's improved over the years it has been the forehand. So I think yeah, those points that Mark highlighted about the importance of the, the forehand to the men's game is, is spot on for when you look at the guys at the top. Absolutely. And it's interesting when I um, had the opportunity to coach against Novak, albeit it was a practice set, 
Um, I found that every time that we tried to penetrate the back end, you just couldn't move him. You know, his backhand side is so steady. Um, and we found that we could expose his forehand in defense a little more than his backhand. But that was going back about seven years ago. Now, you look at his game now, he's able to be defensive on that forehand and he's unbelievable his offense you know he turns defense into offense so well and almost better than anyone now on the tour I think you know defensively he's unbreakable and now he's actually as you said he's added that element of offense to his game especially through the forehand wing that he can pop the ball from any spot on the court so you know it's it's a interesting you know to see players like that trying to find that one percent difference because I feel like you know that's what makes him such an amazing athlete and amazing tennis player is the fact that you know he has defensive skills and offensive skills and, you know, if you can do both of those really well, that's what separates the best, I guess, from the rest. You know, I, I was just wanted to know from a female perspective, did you have any anything around who are the top three players from a female perspective? Women's scores uh, were interesting, particularly for one of the players, and, and I'll touch on that in a second. But uh, I had Serena Williams and Carolina Pliskova as the top two. And these two players certainly use the forehand as part of their one-two on serve. And not a huge surprise, I suspect, to a lot of people that these two were at the top of the list. And then I was actually surprised by number three. Now, I had Angelique Kerber and, and someone that I didn't instinctively think would make even a top five list, hit eleven a top three. So I did actually dive into this a bit more because I was challenging myself on the, on the result and, and saw that it was a part of the, her game that she's actually improved significantly in the last couple of years. So maybe I'll get some of your thoughts on that mark yeah well it's interesting you say Kerber I wouldn't put Kerber probably in the top 10 in terms of data of, of the forehand side I feel like her backhand's probably a steady shot forehand over time I guess probably the last 12 to 18 months I guess on the tour is, has changed and I feel like she's become more offensive she was more of a counter puncher when she won the Australian Open a few years back and she's turned her game into a real blend between defense and offense and she's now starting to pop the ball a lot more with the forehand side and hold her ground better I feel like she was pushing back and being defensive a lot more about two years ago on the forehand side but now she holds her ground and she can change direction really well and maybe that's why her stats and data tell us that you know her forehand is a bit more of a weapon yeah she, she's forcing a lot more errors off the forehand than than she used to um she she's on top of that she's moving better to the forehand side and actually being able to take the forehand from better positions in the court now as part of this and uh, this is it's a bit of a chicken and egg scenario but she's uh, her confidence in her forehand has increased so she's actually hitting her forehand more than, than she used to so uh in terms of stats wise uh, She's hitting close to 2% more forehands in her matches in the last 18 months than throughout the rest of her career. So, uh, And I want to point out, it's not just that she's hitting more forehands. She's actually more offensive with that forehand, hence the, she's uh, forcing more opponents into making mistakes. So put it another way, I, I think if you looked at her defensive forehand rating half a dozen years ago, it's probably not too dissimilar to what it is now. But where she's changed significantly is the attacking side. I think uh, her forehand now is far more offensive than it used to be and it's a it's a big part of why she had that great run at uh, Wimbledon I think it was instrumental to her winning Wimbledon and I, I dare say if she wants to complete that career grand slam by winning the uh, on the clay at Roland Garros over the next couple of years it'll be the forehand that'll need to be firing offensively again as well yeah she's forcing a lot more errors than she was um two, three years ago. And I think that's uh, particularly showing in the data and then using that forehand offensively. And I think that's where the game is though, Shane, as well. I feel like, you know, the players now, and this is with something in coaching I'm trying to do more, I'm, I'm talking a lot more about court position because court position for me plays a huge factor whether I can attack or I can't. So if you're losing court position, 
and, and getting your space taken away from you and you're pushing right back behind the baseline, you can't be aggressive. You can't be an offense. You can't force the error. So it's a lot about court position. And Angelique Kerber has changed that over the last few years. So that's a credit to her and her team for being able to transform what was a very counter-punching kind of game into now a bit more of an aggressive baseline, a slash counter-puncher. Well, that's, a, I guess, you know, thanks for, for doing that research because I feel like it's something that, you know, we all look at objectively and subjectively is, is the fact that the forehand um, on some players is bigger than others. But, you know, you brought in the raw data. You've shown us that, you know, Federer and Adal Del Potro lead the way in the men's with uh, Williams, Pliskova and Angelique Kerber, obviously, on the women's side. So thanks so much for doing that research because I feel like it's something that, you know, we can all guess upon. But when you've got the data in front of you, it, it really tells you who is leading the way. But then also why are they leading? And obviously, court position plays a really big factor in that. And this is why Shane Leonage is the best in the business. Go to data-driven sports analytics for all of your data needs. He's all over social media. Get onto it. He's a, he's a ripper. Thanks again, Shane, for all of your research. And thanks again for the show. Thanks, Mark. See you, everyone, next week. That has been another episode of Crunching the Numbers. I'm Mark Sapulis from The Tennis Menu. Go to us at www.thetennismenu.com. Also, go and check out all of our previous posts uh, all over the first serve. We've uh, done a lot of episodes now. We're, we're rolling on and continue to, to support us, continue to support the first serve. Plenty of uh, podcasts, Aussies only. Brett Phillips and Sam Groth are doing the weekly show on a Monday night. And stay tuned for all of that. Another episode of Crunching the Numbers. We'll see you next week. Subscribe to The First Serve via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform to listen at your convenience to all our weekly content, including past editions of Crunching the Numbers, as well as our dedicated commercial radio program each Monday on SEN that you may have missed at 7pm Eastern, Aussies only, and In the Huddle, produced by Study and Play USA. Subscribe to The First Serve, your home of tennis. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 91